0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the in defense of Plants Podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? This episode, we are taking a look at a very strange group of ferns, the moon warts. These ferns, in many ways, differ from all other ferns on this planet, and their history goes back many, many millions of years. And joining us to talk about this is botanist and self diagnosed sufferer of botrycolosis, Steve Popovich. While Steve is skilled in a wide range of botanical topics, he has a special passion and interest for moonworts, which has culminated in some really great discoveries, which includes descriptions of new species. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Steve Popovich. I hope you enjoy. All right, Steve Popovich, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm super excited to pick your brain today. But first, let's introduce yourself. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Thank you, man. I'm glad to be here. I am super excited also because I am addicted to moon warts and off-field ACE, so this is going to be fun. Awesome. My name is Steve Popovich, and I'm a recently retired U.S. Forest Service botanist. Congrats. I was a botanist for the Forest Service for maybe 15 or 20 years. And I also worked for the Bureau of Land Management, so called BLM, which manages public lands in the Western US, as does the Forest Service. And I actually retired, uh, technically, as the national program leader for the BLM in Washington, D.C., as the Program lead for wildfire rehabilitation and emergency soil stabilization wow. program, which fixes Mother Earth after forest fires and grassland fires, uh, and it had a lot of botany in that job actually, because we, after all, we used uh, plants to 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 try to fix huh. the, the 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 bare soil after fires. But my my love is is botany. I was also a uh, research plant ecologist for the USGS Biological Resources Division, which is a Division for Conducting Research pulled out under the Clinton era and, and stuck into the USGS from uh, scientists from, from other natural resource agencies. Hmm. And I also worked for the fish and wildlife service for a little bit trapping Selkirk mountain caribou in British Columbia, which at that time was an endangered uh, species or subspecies <laughs> of caribou. Wow. Which unfortunately I, I think may no longer be with us. It may actually be extinct. I'm not oh, sure. No. Uh, so I have a, a, a pretty wild background. It's pretty heavy in botany though. And it's always been centered around botanical resources.
0: Fascinating. And yeah, a career steeped in different avenues of enjoying plants is pretty cool to uh, look back on. But where did it all begin? I mean, were you always interested in plants or is it something you kind of found through education or work or wherever?
1: I was I was born ready to go by these. <laughs> I, my mother s- says a cute story that before I could even stand, I was picking petals, crawling along on, on the grass and, and fixing broken twigs and giving them to her. And <laughs> saying, these are pretty. And and so I was just gravitated towards a botany and plants. I just have a love for nature and a love for plants.
0: Awesome. Well, it sounds like uh, you found a pathway to really just immerse yourself in that world. So congratulations.
1: Yes. You know, I, I graduated with a double degree from Colorado State University in uh, the 1980s in range ecology and French. I kind of wanted to stay hmm. kind of Arts and sciences are two different <laughs> disciplines, and I wanted to be balanced. And then I went on and nice. got my master's from the same university in, in range science. And range is the discipline of livestock grazing on lands. Mm. I Think cattle and, and sheep on, on public lands, mostly in the West. But I took that curriculum because it actually had a very well-balanced set of coursework that was holistic in, in ecosystem management. So it was a little bit of soils, a little bit of climate, a lot of botany, a lot of plant identification, and how plants fit into the rest of the world and what the importance of plants was. So I highly valued that. So I ended up with that degree, uh, not botany per se. And I really liked that. And I just found myself wanting to be some sort of botany type person Hmm. in the federal government, because that Leveraged a lot of opportunities on on outdoors and on public lands like national forests and national parks, and and so that's why I picked that otherwise kind of strange, not botany me <laughs> car- uh, career path. But so it started in range, but that morphed into into uh, plant science.
0: That's awesome, and I have to say, some of the most talented and and like well-rounded ecologists even uh, that I've ever met. Actually, their their entire specialty was, was range science because it is such a driver of what's going on in the ecology out there. Uh, you know, it's it's an economic important issue, but it's also a reflection of how we're treating the landscape.
1: That's exactly right. And you have to, you know, I remember taking classes in economics, and you had to go take a forestry class up in the in the um, natural setting for a semester back in those days, and you had to actually work on a working ranch for a semester and derive a ranch management plan. And so it just drove home how all the parts of an ecosystem fit together and where the plant world fits into that and the importance of the plant world. And it's just such an, you know, there's bare rock and then there's soil (laughs) and then there's plants and everything (laughs) green and everything else comes from that habitats and wildlife and so on and so on and birds in the sky. And it it all goes down to the importance of plants for, for me.
0: Well, Steve, you are on the right podcast to be having that mindset. So welcome, friend. Thank you. (laughs) So the reason we connected was because a friend and colleague of yours, Becky, shout out to Becky for uh, putting me in touch with you. But uh, she mentioned you are part of a newly described moonwort species. And that, to me, is so exciting. It is. It's great.
1: You know, um, biologists and botanists, Kind of one of the feathers in our caps the thing we dream of doing is describing a new plant species right everybody would love to <laughs> to find it and in this case not only did i personally among with other enthusiasts and botanists find this new species but we also got to describe it so it was really a fun process from the beginning of what is this thing it's different hey, this doesn't look like it's cohorts. Maybe we ought to look at the genes of this thing and, and hmm. see if something's going on. It's a little morphologically different. And so we sent it off to get analyzed genetically at a dedicated laboratory at Iowa State University that really hones in on moon warts and other fern allies wow. and fern-like things, bryophytes and so on. And it came back as it's it's genetically different, and it looks different. And sure enough, it was a new diploid species in the world, new to us, of course. It, it, it's known it's been around for, oh, millions of years. <laughs> right,
0: maybe. right. And that's a really important point to bring home is that, you know, these descriptions really are describing diversity as we see it on the landscape, not that it appeared overnight or that other people might not have seen it or known about it. It's it's fitting it into the taxonomic or the tree of life saying, no, this is distinct from all the other things. And that's where the description process comes in.
1: Right. And this one is particularly important from a species evolution standpoint because it, it feels some missing Boxes on the uh, sort of species tree. It, it helped us figure out uh, parental putative parental relationships to other species and kind of helped round out the sort of tree. If you think a Homo sapien tree, it's kind of like that, only with moonworts with, with with Botrychium. Um, so it was it was really wonderful to find this one because it helped us further our knowledge in the taxonomic placements and the relationships of different botricium to each other.
0: Wow, that is super exciting, uh, you know, because, hey, you know, describing a new species is already an amazing feat. Like you said, it's the feather in the cap for most biologists. But to know that it actually answers a bigger picture of, of what the diversity of a, a lineage is doing, that's an extra feather on top of that feather, I'm sure.
1: Yes, and what's really cool about this, uh, we called it botricium furculatum. So we're talking about the family Ophioglossaceae. And it's a fairly small genus family, maybe four or five genera in the family. The taxonomy is really quite contentious. Hmm. And we keep revising and revising as we get closer to, oh, I don't want to say truth, because <laughs> the plants know the ultimate truth, but we just stick them in boxes <laughs> so that we can better manage our brains around right. where, what, what these critters are. But uh, within that, there's a subgenus Botrychium. So Botrychium, subgenus Botrychium, which are very cryptic, small the smallest group of plants in this family. And they're called moonworts, is the common name. And that's what we're talking about today. We're just focusing on this, this little niche of Ophioglossaceae. It's an incredibly unique family. We'll get into that a little bit. It's got some really neat attributes about it that I'm sure your listeners will find fascinating that we'll talk about. But this one was really neat because when we found it, we could identify by looking at the, at the DNA, by looking at the at, at the genetics indirectly through allozyme or electrophoretic analysis, which is actually an outmoded, outdated form of DNA um, implications, yet it's not outmoded for botrychium. It actually works much better and has high confidence in results hmm. and high confidence in interpretation than, than a lot of the more um, fancy. Uh, cutting-edge genetic testing that we do these days. So we use old-fashioned electrophoretic um, enzyme testing, which is an indirect measure of of looking at DNA by looking at proteins that the DNAs produce. The idea is one DNA will produce one protein, a different DNA Hmm. sequence, or a different uh, allelic composition will, will produce a different set of proteins. And we look at the proteins and we say, okay, These proteins infer this group of genes, these different proteins infer these different groups of genes. And so we arrive at different DNA compositions that way, but it it works for moonworts, and it's it's time tested. And we found by looking at um, these proteins that, hey, one of the parents we already know, Botrychium pallidum, uh, which is a a moonwort uh, mostly in the Midwest. And um, we found that there's this missing genes in this new thing that we have that aren't found anywhere else. So we thought, okay, one putative parent is botricium pallidum, but the other parent is a question mark, it's a huh. mystery. And we didn't know that that, and that's a new parent that we didn't know existed in Botricium until we found this, this offspring of these two putative parents. Because the offspring say, here's uh, parent A and here's parent B, we've got parent A down, but parent B, is showing these protein combinations that we haven't seen before. So it must mean there's a parent bee out there, and we don't know what that parent is. And to round out this story, why this is really cool, if you're a botany geek, is because in looking for more Botrychium ferculatum when we wanted to circumscribe its habitat and its range geographically, we found the missing parent.
0: That's awesome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is. It, this never happens. You can't make this stuff up. Wow. And I am not making this stuff up, but it sounds almost surreal. So we're on our hands and knees because these plants, these, these things are only an inch or two or three inches <laughs> tall at the most. They're very hard to find. And we're we're finding these things, and we found some plants. Um, a colleague named Benjamin Legler found some plants in a remote area in the remote mountains of of uh, North Central Wyoming, the Bighorn Mountains and the Bighorn National Forest. Excellent. No one goes there, pretty underbotanized, And he's looking around for Ferculatum, this new thing that we described. And he finds these plants that look like Ferculatum but they're a little bit different, just a little bit different. So he says, oh, I better send them off to the the Isozyme lab in, in, in Ames, Iowa at Iowa State University. And they came back as the missing parent wow. of this Ferculatum.
0: That's wild.
1: So it's incredible that not only did we find this new uh, Ferculatum, but we found this missing diploid that's one of the putative parents to Ferculatum. We're, 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 you know, we're virtually 100% certain. We're as certain as we can be given the constraints of our uh, technologies.
0: That is so remarkable to not only have stumbled across this, but then the detective work, and then the luck, like you said, to go to this area where no one's looking and find something that you have to literally be on your hands and knees to actually see in any detail.
1: Yes, that's right. And this thing, this thing that we're going to call Botrychium ferrarii, which will name be named after my colleague and mentor, Dr. Donald Ferrar, who runs this lab at Iowa State. It's a diploid, so it's the base parent, and it appears to be at this time highly restricted to three small sites with 10 or 20 plants each along one road in this national forest and we've looked for i would say 10 years now from southern canada to northern new mexico all down the spine of of the the rockies all over the rocky mountain cordillera and we cannot find more of this thing and we've we've sent off hundreds of plants to be analyzed when we're not sure And they always come back as, no, it's not it. And so why is it itself seemingly so rare? But its progeny, this Platricum friculatum, is actually quite common. It's a new species, but it's quite common once we know what we were looking for and started looking Hmm. for more of it. It's common from southern Alberta and Saskatchewan all the way down to northern New Mexico, all along uh, the spine of the Rockies. There's probably thousands of sites. We've documented maybe 40 or 50 sites. And that kind of leads me into saying that some of the way we can sort this out is because uh, with moonworts alloploidy is very common. So the new species is a tetraploid, so it's it's four n, and um, this both parents were two n, and they these two parents were different species who got together and made fertile offspring four n, and so we could look we could sort of figure out more easily that there were two different parents and one was missing. And in moonworts, one of the things that's really common about Ophioglossaceae, it's, it's, it's um, somewhat common in, in other vascular plants and, and other lower plants as well. But in Botrychium, it's quite common is something called uh, horizontal speciation or horizontal evolution or reticulated evolution. Okay. It's kind of sideways evolution. Sh- 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 can I kind of elaborate on yeah, that? Yeah yeah, please
0: do because I'm sure there will be questions.
1: <laughs> right. It's kind of a neat thing. This is one of the ways that Botrichium is helping us understand evolutionary biology um, better uh, is if you think of most evolution, you, you tend to think of mother and father coming from the same species, and having a, uh, reproduction through a sexual mode and creating progeny that have genes of both parents. And that's kind of vertical evolution. If you think of a, a ladder and the rungs on the ladder, the normal evolution is, is the two uh, columns, the two long parts of the ladder. They're, they're starting at the bottom, and they're, work, and they're going higher and higher and higher, coming from the same species. And the species itself is evolving slowly over time with genetic mutations and things like that. Right. But horizontal evolution, as the name implies, if you think of a rung of a ladder, it's going sideways. It's species A is one of the, one of the long rails and species B is, a, is the other long rail. And then there's a rung connecting the two rails. So two species that are unlike are crossing, are hybridizing and creating fertile offspring that is itself reproductive, has reproductive ability. And that fertile offspring inherits genes from both different species and can reproduce, uh, it gets a little complicated, but it's, it's fertile. So it's, um, it's a new species and it happens, boom, like right now, instantaneous, <laughs> when individual species A and individual species B cross, and normally we think of them crossing and, and creating an infertile right. F1 hybrid that does not allow itself to reproduce successfully and after that individual has lived its lifespan it dies and it doesn't make any progeny that's that then that's what that's one of the indicators of different species right is that when they supposedly they cannot create fertile offspring right. they're, they're genetically different enough that their chromosomes in each species don't recognize each other and don't pair in meiosis properly and so they uh, abort the offspring but this is different this is reticulated evolution where the magic works and what happens is two different species get together, create a, a singular individual plant, and it undergoes chromosome doubling by itself, this plant. And that's a little bit complicated, but um, <laughs> because it, it undergoes chromosome doubling, and in this case, it goes from 2N to 4N, uh, the chromosomes can recognize each other in the doubled chromosome amount during the time when they when they pair. And they can um, align properly and produce fertile offspring from that one plant that are also foreign. And when that happens, you have a new species instantly, kind of overnight. Wow. And Botrychium, we have like around, uh, I believe it's around 30 species, all of two of which are in North America. Oh, wow. It's kind of a hot spot for Botrychium. Right on. Um, and, and especially the Northern Hemisphere, there's not too much Botrychium happening in the Southern Hemisphere. There's a little bit. <laughs> But of, of these species, half are allotetraploids or alloploids. One's a allohexaploid, where, where a tetraploid 4 end plant got together with a 2N plant and made a 6 end plant. Whoa. But half of the species in this genus are formed by horizontal evolution. That is huge.
0: What? I had That's no not idea. Normal. I mean,
1: there's some high rates in, 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 in vascular plants and in ferns, uh, but not like this. Wow. It's crazy because um, it has huge implications for the surviv- survivability and the fitness of this, of this uh, genus, Botrichium in the long term, because uh, it, it's inherited greater genetic variability coming from two different species at two different times in two different places. And the progeny have this inherently greater genetic variability, which translates to presumed greater fitness and presumed greater ability to handle habitat stress and different habitats. So, uh, half of all the species in this, in this genus formed that way. It's pretty, it's pretty killer. And and we don't know when it could, was it 10,000 years ago? Was it yesterday? Was it <laughs> right. a years ago? Because of this horizontal nature.
0: Yeah. I mean, so like you said, these things can happen overnight and, and that's one of the amazing things. It's like a frustrating thing, I guess, if you're a taxonomist sometimes, but this is this time when you got to step back and just look at plants with such a sense of awe and wonder, and especially plants that, like Botrichium, largely go unnoticed by most people. I mean, when people hear us talking about a fern here, they're probably picturing something with like long, beautiful feathery fronds. No, no, no. These are tiny plants most of the time.
1: Right. Um, It's a a very primitive group of plants. It's only distantly related to modern ferns. So um, we don't like to use frond and fern when we talk about (laughs) moonworts because they're really only remotely related. Their closest living relatives are Silotum and and the order of Silotales. And Ophioglossales order is most related to Silotales order. Silotum have some morphological and cytological attributes that are similar, but they're still pretty different. Yeah, Moonworts and Ophioglossaceae are a rather unique family. There's a lot of really cool things about it that I want to talk about and make your listeners aware of, because <laughs> you might, you might accidentally get addicted like I am. <laughs> so, you know, they're, 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 they're a fern-like plant and it's, it's hard without an image, but they're an odd looking creature. They're only a couple inches tall, uh proper. Right. And, Uh, I'd like to maybe go through their life cycle. Yeah, yeah, please. uh, Kind of shed some light on why these things are particularly interesting. Lay it on us. So, you know, fern life cycle 101. Oh my God, go away.
0: (laughs) I don't want to know this. (laughs) No, 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 no. This is the exact audience that wants to know this. (laughs) uh,
1: But, you know, maybe divide your, divide your image with a line across it above that is above ground and below that is below ground. And they have, they have two parts to them, a gametophytic generation and a sporophytic generation like ferns do, sporophytes and gametophytes. But, Think of a spore floating around in the air and this spore lands in the ground and it has to go below ground and it has to do the um Goldilocks thing where it has to find just the right portion in, in the subsurface to to make it happy and germinate we don't know what that is for botrychium but <laughs> that most of them germinate seem to germinate or reside around the interface between the mineral horizon of the soil and the organic horizon oh. of the soil. So maybe below the B horizon. Huh. And so they sit there, and we don't know how long the spore wants to take its time to germinate, but one day it decides to germinate. We don't know how. <laughs> why? It germinates. And at that point, it becomes a, um, a below-ground gametophyte. It's haploid. It's 1N. And it's about 0.1 to 3 millimeters big, so it's pretty small, kind of okay. like a pinhead. Okay. And it's just sitting there as a gametophyte. And it can grow and grow. And we don't know how long it wants to sit there as a gametophyte, but we think it can be years. And then it decides to reproduce. And so it makes one end sperm and one end um, eggs. And the sperm are held in antheridias, special area for the sperm to reside. And the eggs are in the archegonia. And the sperm is released and travels to the egg below ground. Mind you, it's swimming more or less <laughs> right. uh, below ground. Yeah, And it uh, fertilizes the egg of the same plant or maybe of a different plant. But what's really curious about these plants that I'll get into is mostly it's of the same plant, probably because oh, the distance wow. is shorter than other gametophytes that may be more millimeters away. Okay. So swimming one millimeter or a half a millimeter or a 10th of a millimeter is easier than swimming five millimeters <laughs> or five feet.
0: Makes sense. And
1: uh, it, it fertilizes this egg and it produces a 2N zygote below ground, just like we are 2N zygotes when we're in, conceived. And then it it grows into a diploid at that point, And that's the sporophyte plant. So that sporophyte plant is below ground. It's two in and it grows by mitosis and it grows and it grows about maybe the size of a dime or maybe smaller, kind of like a little saucer thing. And it sits around below ground and it's like, you know, Hey, I'm just going to chill. I don't need to do anything. Take
0: my time.
1: <laughs> I'm going to take my time and sit here and not really do anything and just be this little saucer <laughs> dime like thing. And may- maybe for a long time, we don't know. Yeah. And then it eats the gametophyte for food. And the other thing that's really cool about these plants is the reasons that these things can persist below ground so long is because we believe they're 100% reliant on food and water from mycorrhizal associations.
0: Yes. Oh, that's so cool. I was hoping you were going to say that.
1: <laughs> it's totally cool. Oh, that is That is the killer part about this plant is it can actually complete its life cycle completely below ground. Wow! It never has to come up off ground which is part of why they're cryptic and hard to find uh-huh. because literally they're not above ground a lot of the time. <laughs> right. uh, so they're getting, we believe food and water and nutrients and, and, and possibly whatever else below ground from endophytic, ectophytic, arbuscular, all kinds of fungi associations. And the fungi that they're associated with them attached to the rhizoids and roots and stems seem to be cosmopolitan species so far, like not this really rare group of fungi, not yet anyway, that we found. Sure. Uh, and so it's just hanging out, eating the gametophyte and getting maybe some food and energy from, from fungi. And then it decides it wants, wants to grow, but it can probably sit below ground for years. We don't know how long, five years, 10 years. We don't know, but we think years.
0: That is respect.
1: (laughs) Yes. And then it says, I want to come out of the ground now. What cues that we have no idea. And so it starts to send up a single leaf from where it's growing at that um, mineral organic interface so that single leaf is sort of sending out a a, a petiole and the petiole is growing towards this towards the top of the ground it's growing up how it knows to go up we don't know (laughs) which way is up it's not heliotropic because there's no sun below ground it's dark right so something is compassing this plant to know what up is which is also pretty interesting. Yeah. And so it pops its little leaf petiole top out of the ground and it has a little bent part that protects it from coming out of the ground. I call that the airfoil because this all happens very slowly, so I'm joking. <laughs> and then it's it, it has a common stalk that is a single stalk that goes maybe a, an eighth of an inch, a half an inch, an inch, two inches. And then, it's also curious about these plants, genetic cueing, something tells the stock to divide into two parts. We don't know what. Hmm. And one part becomes a leaf looking part. It's vegetative, and one part becomes a reproductive part. And it makes a little y or a junction or a or a, or a wishbone shape at this at with a part or a, a slingshot looking bowed shape. Hmm. Uh, and that's what we name this new species after ferculatum. Fercula is little fork or, oh. or or wishbone. It's the Latin name for the avian wishbone. It's called a fercula, like nice. a Thanksgiving yes. one, wishbone part. Yeah, because this species that we published is particularly bowed at that junction. And it looks like a slingshot or a, or a wishbone. By the way, we were going to name it botricium fundator. Very commanding name. It has presence. Fundator, yeah. which is the Latin name for the slingshot that the Roman warriors carried. Nice. Roman legionnaires carried. Or Botricium tentaculum because one of the parts of the plants can that harbors sporangia can look like the tentacular arm of an octopus, especially when the sporangia crack open and dehiss and release their very spores. It cool. look like the suckers of a of a, of a tentacle.
0: Nice.
1: Um, but getting back to that, it splits and then um, one forms a little frond-looking or fern-looking leaf part, if you will. And then the other half forms these little um sporangia that look like little bb's They're maybe um half a millimeter to maybe two millimeters around, and they're kind of orange or yellow, and they hold the spores. And so this 2N leaf portion is now above the ground, and that's the only part that's come above the ground of the entire plant, (laughs) just a singular leaf. And it's very small, and it's really hard to find. (laughs) And sometimes full-grown leaves are a half an inch, and sometimes they're three inches. And and so you're seeing one leaf that it's the only family in the world. It's a distant primitive, before we learned how to reproduce and make separate reproductive organs – Let's try this back in the dinosaur days. Let's have a leaf separate into a reproductive part and a, and a, and a lamina part, a leaf a, a leaf blade part, which can be dissected like ferns. It can look like a frond, but it's not a frond. Uh, you know, a frond has uh, sporangia on the back of the frond. Right. This is different. In, in ferns, there's sporangia on the backs of the frond. You, you flip them over, you see endusium, you see little places that hold little spores and the little black dots or brown dots. But there's nothing to flip over here. This is split into two different, (laughs) almost separate organs, but they're the same organ. It's a leaf. So another way to think of this is how odd this is, is you walk up to an apple tree, you pick an apple. Well, an apple is a reproductive organ. There's a leaf that's a reproductive organ. They're not connected. They're not one organ. This is one leaf that's split into a reproductive part and a non-reproductive part, which is back from millions of years ago before we figured out that we wanted to maybe uh evolutionize further into a separate (laughs) separate organs, you know. So that's that's what's so unique about about um this family. Um and it's really pronounced in in Votrichium. So then this leaf comes out in midsummer and it only it's very ephemeral. It only lasts for maybe a month or two. Wow. And then it releases spores when they're mature. The sporangia dehiss and crack open just like a lot of seed pods do more or less kind of thing if you want to put that in your mind and <laughs> and the spores come out and the spores are very very light almost like the weight of the seeds of orchids mm. these aren't seeds these are spores but right, just right. to compare you can see orchid orchid seeds sometimes. Uh, blowing in the wind are almost going up because they're so light they almost sort of <laughs> defy gravity looking like you know well spores are like that for 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 um moon and so they can go into the upper atmosphere even wow so theoretically a spore of a moonwort can go from california to england you know it's probably happened right but most spores land very close to the mother plant you know within inches even within a foot within a half a meter okay uh, so then those spores hit the ground, and that's the life cycle, the sexual life cycle in a circle, kind of, right?
0: Whew, yeah.
1: But the other cool thing about moonworts is they can reproduce with two modalities. They can also vegetatively reproduce. Oh, geez. So, down in that, when that sporophyte was hanging out below ground and it said, one of these years, I'm going to send up a leaf. But maybe not this year. The leaves don't come up every year. Maybe next year. Maybe I'll wait five years. (laughs) They only ever send up, in Botrychium, they only ever send up one leaf, never more. Mm -hmm. But if you go down and look at the sort of the meristem part of the base of the plant, there's four little leaves in line waiting to come out for the next four years. So it sends up one leaf, and then it has four more leaves to go, and they kind of are sitting there. And then it makes a new leaf underneath those four leaves to replace the leaf that it just sent up. It's so bizarre and interesting and cool, (laughs) but it's just sitting there with these four little leaves and the one leaf that came up and maybe it wants to not send up a leaf. So it reproduces vegetatively by sending out little clones that come out of the side of its body. And these are called gemmy, gemma singular. And there's a couple other plants in the world that make gemmy as well. Uh, But, it's pretty darn cool because it's a little beady brown looking BB size thing that just kind of comes out from the side of the plant, kind of, kind of around where the roots are. And those jemmy can themselves grow. They're, ready, they're self-contained, ready to grow into adults as is. Wow. So no sexual reproduction, no sexual exchange, mind you, within its own plant. Cause the sperm swims to the egg of the own plant. None of that happened. It just sent out a clone so it can do both. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, how cool would that be if humans could do that? Right. You
0: know? right. One day I just need another one of me over here.
1: Right. Right. And it's exactly the same. Yeah. So, um, because it can reproduce by clones and we don't really have a good feel for if it has a preference or if it, it mostly reproduces, sexually or mostly reproduces um, asexually through clones we don't really have a feel for that but Mm. we know it's both and that can maximize survival also so think of it this way these guys go back to 50 60 million years ago right around the kp boundary time right around the great event where the dinosaurs went extinct right in north america we have fossil records of botrichium back to 60 million years we don't know how much further back they'll go dang Ferns go back uh, several hundred million years, and maybe moonworts do too. We just haven't found the fossils yet. But (laughs) what we know today is modern-looking moonworts go back in the fossil record 60 million years. So they survived. They were around before the dinosaurs, and they survived the mass extinction. Nice. So how? So some of the stuff I was telling you about fungi and reproductive methods matters because – Maybe this is wild speculation on our part, but maybe they survived mass extinction by just staying below ground, waiting, waiting. (laughs) And you know what? We can just keep reproducing uh, by clones and we can just keep getting our energy and and water from the fungi, which are surviving below ground quite nicely, probably. Mm -hmm. So we'll just wait this out. And then, you know, maybe five or 10 years later or 50 years later or who knows, they poke up their heads and look around and go, oh. There's a bunch of ash here and lava and a bunch of dinosaur bones, and we can come out and play now. (laughs) So that's kind of neat. Yeah.
0: I mean, sure, wild speculation. It makes sense. It's a valid argument. But imagine going to sleep before the dinosaurs went extinct and then waking up in a vastly different world.
1: Vastly different. And you know what? Below ground habitat is what's important to moon It's the fungal relationships that are important and the soil properties that are important and the lack of disturbance below ground. They don't like cracking because cracking the soil uh, cracks the fungal hyphae mm. and breaks the fungal chain, and the fungi don't like it and they die, and then the moonworts die. So um, it makes sense because uh, fungi are probably pretty darn robust to whatever's happening above ground. And because below-ground habitat is what's important to these guys' survival, they were just happy down there. <laughs> um, and, you know, also a lot of the uh, small animals survived the dinosaur extinction, you know, and that's where we got the rise of the small mammals and smaller smaller reptiles and amphibians, and these guys are also small. So there's a lot of uh, neat speculation about it. Yeah, certainly. Um, the, one thing that's really cool that's related to that, that <sighs> – I didn't believe it until I did it myself because I, I thought my colleagues were actually pulling my leg because this one's on the verge of completely unbelievable. <laughs> but we talked about the genetic healing of this plant that divides into two parts: a yeah. little leaf part and a little um, sporangia holding part. Uh, and I encourage your listeners to look up images of moonworts. Just Google moonworts.
0: Oh, I'll also it's, be posting some.
1: <laughs> they they look like that's another thing is they. If you can think of what did a, den- uh, a plant look, a small plant look like in the dinosaur days, these are really archaic, bizarre, otherworldly <laughs> looking creatures. They almost look like they're from the dinosaur days, yeah. you know? Yeah. So related to all of this, there's another fascinating thing is, we talked about the queuing that the common stock somehow genetically queued at some point in time and some height to divide into these two parts, the leaf part and the spore part. So if you take, uh, if you dig up some moonwort sporophytes below ground, being very careful not to break the soil apart, so sandy soil is bad, heavier soil is better because it won't break as much. Hmm. Stick that into a paper lunch bag, tape it up, (laughs) put a date on it, put it in your refrigerator, take the light bulb out of your refrigerator, keep, keep your refrigerator at constant temperature of, let's just say, 40 degrees or 45 degrees seal up your tape refrigerator with masking tape so no one can cheat and put that put it in there in the end of the summer or the fall and come back in the beginning of the next year's summer when they want to come out of the ground you can open up that brown bag that's been sealed and there'll be a leaf coming out of the soil what what so so how does it know when it's time to send the leaf above ground how does it know it's not relying on sunlight? It's not relying on humidity change. It's not relying on temperature change. It's not re- relying on daylight hours changing. It's not relying on frost-free period. How, what is its cue locked in this refrigerator in the dark to know, oh, it's, uh, it's May or June now. I'll come, out of the, I'll come out of the ground in my paper bag now and, and, and grow a leaf.
0: We, it's wild. Yeah.
1: It's weird. And so why is this important? It, it's all about genetic cueing. It's got internal compasses. And in this case, it's got an internal clock, right? Mm. Maybe it's breakdown of sugars. Maybe it's changes Mm -hmm. in molecules. We don't know what is, maybe it's hormone changing and they have half-lives, but something is changing or cueing this thing to know it's may for (laughs) let's say Colorado plants. Right. So think of if we could think of cancer in humans, Think of if we could turn on and off cancer genes. Think if we could turn on and off cancer cells from replicating. Think if we could learn what that genetic cueing or that that other cueing mechanism, whatever it is, is. Maybe there's utilitarian values for this knowledge of learning how botrichium turn on and off their genetic cueing, because maybe we could... Um, you use that in medicine or disease or mutations, turning on and off mutations or, or who knows.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, that's an amazing perspective to bring to the table for such an obscure group of plants. For most people, I realize there are many among us who truly enjoy and admire these plants, but. I am all for science for the sake of science, but mostly because of things like you just said there. You have no idea what we could possibly learn from trying to understand the nuances of even a single species, let alone an entire group doing things their own way, learning how to live since probably well before the dinosaurs.
1: Exactly. And, you know, we like to think of ourselves as at, sort of at the top, and we always tend to look at the importance of other species through the lens of of human utility or human value. More and more, you know, today we're starting to understand that there is some sort of intrinsic, indeterminable value of nature itself and of plants themselves and ecosystems themselves. They exist to exist and they're beautiful how they are. And they have value in and of themselves. And we can't put a human value on that, but it's just, it's mind boggling how something as small and in our human value we deem insignificant perhaps Mm. as a botrychium may hold great utilitarian value for us in the future and also has its own place in the ecosystem. You know um, it's a canary in a coal mine for for below ground fungal communities. You know how we're learning that fungal communities are vastly interconnected and more connected to higher vascular plants than we ever thought possible. Yeah. You know, they're finding, you know, isotopes of, of salmon flesh at the tops of dug fir trees in the <laughs> Pacific Northwest that, that came from the salmon migrating upstream and dying and the bear eating it and so on and on. Right. But fungi are really key to, to, a lot of terrestrial ecosystems at least in the western US probably globally and they're they're interconnecting all plants almost into a a singular great organism if you want to get <laughs> way out there on that because if you cut the connection of the fungus it's directly cutting and then indirectly uh, several connections remove connections to trees and 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 uh, dicots and you know bryophytes and who knows what else. Well, the moonworts are right in there with it. Mm-hmm. And we tend to almost look at above ground expression of, of the leaves of moonworts. Maybe there's uh, 500 leaves set site or 1, at a thousand leaves set site, Or typically there's several dozen at a site. They tend to be smaller sites. Those leaves are coming out because maybe the plant is happy. And it's doing its thing and it's able to send, it's able to expend energy reserves to form a leaf because it's, as far as we know, not getting replenishment of that energy reserve that cost by the sun, because as far as we know, the chloroplasts are inactive in that leaf, right? It's not, it's not uh, photosynthesizing. And so you know the canary is the moonwort if the leaves don't come above ground for a long time that could be indicating that something's amiss below ground with the greater mycorrhizal ecosystem we just don't know
0: yeah yeah i mean just in the the the, the 40 some odd minutes we've been talking you've outlined 20 plus dissertations slash research careers (laughs) for people that you know want to chip off a little piece of this massive i mean ecosystem level puzzle here but i love any time you can take a group like Botrichium and and place them in the greater context just to show how remarkable this is and then even coming back to the species that connected us in the first place all of the things you just outlined about not only the life cycle of these organisms, but what it takes to get to producing their own spores from swimming sperm under the soil to lying dormant, you know, non-photosynthetic at least for years living off of fungi. And to think that at some level, half of the species known to exist today were the result of two different gametophytes from different species somehow getting close enough together to even make that happen. I mean, that in and of itself is a feat of nature and worthy of scientific study. Let alone all the downstream interest that you've just drummed up among the audience. Yeah, Matt,
1: you 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 have it very well put. Uh, that's kind of a good overview. And the other thing, another thing that's interesting about the reproductive biology of this plant is it undergoes probably founder effect. It undergoes gene silencing. It undergoes all these. Uh, kinds of um, genetic mm, hindrances and manipulations and mutations that you learn about in in basic genetics in college that that a lot of plants undergo but it also has a, an extremely high level of homozygosity within the populations and what I mean by that is there's not a lot of genetic expression at individual all- allelic sites of the uh, of the of the plant in its genetic makeup it's um there's not a lot of outbreeding. It's an inbreeding plant. And we tend to think of inbreeding as kind of bad somehow, mm. reducing genetic variability. But in the case of moonworts, inbreeding has served it well. And whatever it is doing, it has lasted since before the dinosaur days. <laughs> and it's like out of sight. And, you know, it's doing fine. Yeah. It's doing fine. And so when this plant produces sexually and a sperm from one individual swims to the egg of the same individual and fertilizes it, there's very low chance of genetic uh, exchange. There's mm. none. Where's it coming from? Right. There could be a genetic mutation, which you know happens very slowly, which is one form of genetic variability gain. But it's basically uh, the same gene. And when it produces a clone of itself, it's also the same gene so um, when you see plants at a site that those plants let's say that there's let's just make up a number that there's a hundred plants at a site we we usually above ground we have no idea below ground (laughs) but above ground we usually see scores of leaves or a hundred leaves or maybe maybe a few hundred leaves we have done some below ground studies that show that there's some proportions you can say that for every above ground leaf there's x number of times (laughs) gametophytes and sporophytes below ground that we don't see and it's 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 x times more, whether it's five or ten times more. I can't, I don't recall. Fair. But it's more. Yeah. So maybe one leaf above ground means there's 50 plants below ground or whatever. But they could have all come from one spore that blew from California to northern Nevada, settled in a canyon, got happy, vegetatively made a whole bunch of clones of itself, and then they made more clones of themselves. Meanwhile, they're also reproducing sexually, but they're basically Sexual reproduction in in botrichium is pretty much genetically variability speaking equivalent to almost asexual or vegetative reproduction because (laughs) there's no genetic Unless one gamete from one plant goes to a gamete of another plant, which seems to be pretty rare Hmm. So they're not heterozygous. They're homozygous. And so you look at 50 plants above ground, let's say 100 They're all really genetically closely related. And in fact, maybe in theory, they all came from one spore once upon a time Wow And then they kind of adapt to that site. And so what that means is because of horizontal evolution and because of this homozygosity, the end result without getting into the details of it is that there's subtly different, very small levels of genetic difference between sites of the same species, but it's there. And at some point it reaches a point of speciation where you go, it's not so subtle anymore. There's a a greater (laughs) difference now being expressed at this site. And so maybe um, this site warrants a separate species, but it's really hard to set species lines on this plant because each little site has the potential to be started from one or a few plants that are themselves very similarly related. and But they're different than plants from a different site and they're different from a third site. And so there's within site homozygosity, but between site variability. And it just, it's, it starts to numb your brain and you have to drink lots of beer to try to even <laughs> want to think about it more. But needless to say, it it, it creates a, it brings to bear uh, the limits on our imposed concept of putting species on an organism and putting boxes on organisms.
0: Mm-hmm. And anytime an organism can kind of challenge our, Concept of organization. It's fun. It's an exercise that can be enjoyed. Uh, it can be extremely frustrating, I guess, for some. But you know, if you enjoy biodiversity, these are things that you can think of till the cows come home. And you're lucky, I guess, in the context of what you did with this plant and its progenitors, that you had a lab <laughs> that is dedicated to the genetics of this group to at least sort it out. Because you know, if you were just going on morphology, ooh, there would be debates. Till the end of time, I'm sure.
1: Yes, and actually, um, that's a good point. Is there's a high level of morphological variation, even though there's a low level of genetic <laughs> variation. It, it's 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 it can be very frustrating. That's when we sit back and go, Oh yeah, uh, that's the part of botany that can be challenging. Is I don't always know what I'm looking at. And, <laughs> yeah. and botanists always strive to want to put a label and identify everything. You know, we love going down dichotomous keys and figuring it out. Which, by the way, we just we wrote in 2012, we wrote a comprehensive uh, dichotomous key for the Botrychium of Colorado, nice. which is where I'm with you from today. And that key has something that's old school, that's rarely done anymore, and we're very proud of this. We have inline couplet drawings, fully huh. illustrated drawings, you nice. know, black and white, you know, line drawings of, you know, Uh, Plant tall, plant short, you know, um, (laughs) lamina three centimeters long, lamina less than three centimeters long, all that kind of stuff. But the line drawings really aid the reader. And we've underlined in the couplets what the line drawings are supposed to be showing. Nice. Because moonwords are kind of hard to key out. We also did something that has never been done before or since. We put life-size black and white uh, silhouette images, high-res images as figures in the book. So of every moonword in the key. So you can actually.
0: I'm applauding you for this. This yes. you should be proud of that. That's thank you. <laughs> it's huge.
1: It took us 10 years, and Dang. and you know it's great great because the key is 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 Colorado flora, but it covers all Botrychium occurring in all states that adjoin Colorado. So if you add it up, it's actually Utah. Wyoming, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arizona, and New Mexico, and Colorado. That's now a pretty good chunk of the western U.S. Yeah. All the botrichium that are published to date are in that key with images of all of them, and line drawings, and parts labeled, and anatomy, and a table of occurrences by state. And if people, if the listener wants more information about using the key, that would be a good starting point. And that's that's in, um, I can give you the, the, the title in writing, but it's Colorado flora, Eastern slope or Colorado flora, Western slope, either version works. And by uh, Weber and Whitman, 2012 published by CU Boulder. Excellent. And you can get it online. It's pretty cheap. I think the key might even be available for free online. Nice. But um, I also did want to say one other cool yeah, thing yeah. about moon Please. <laughs> just because we're not the only fascinated people. I was telling you uh, off the record before we start that when I saw my first little plant and my, colleague she said oh that's a moonwort that's botrychium it's in the adder's tongue family they're really hard to find but when you find them listen to all these cool things about them." and he he regurgitated all the stuff i just <laughs> spent 40 minutes telling you about <laughs> i was instantly hooked and i became um, an addict and i had to find more and i had to it created a strong desire to want to understand nature better and understand our ecosystems better and understand how this thing works and what its role is uh, so it had a greater holistic effect on me than just a little plant. It was, well, what does this plant represent? What does it mean? And how does it reproduce? And what does that tell us about <laughs> evolutionary biology? And when he started telling me about this, he said, you know, that these have been known about, um, we're not the only ones who find them fascinating. These have been written about since like almost the Roman times. And oh. I'm like, what? You're kidding me. There, there's a, moon, there's, a, there's um, a species or two of moonwort in Europe. And uh, it's true there's actually people who have written about them back in these times, they were believed to have curative medicinal properties. Hmm. And they were believed to be quite mysterious, because Mm -hmm. you couldn't find them. (laughs) And so passing forward to medieval ages, they took on grand proportions of folklore. Wow. And I find it fascinating. For example, they thought that Maybe they came out only under a full moon. Came uh-huh. out meaning the leaves came above ground only under a full moon because you never saw them. Uh-huh. And they had the power, they had great power. They had the power to unshod the the, the shoes of, of the horses of knights. So if a knight rode over it, it would take the shoes off the off the knight. That's not a good thing if you're a knight. Yeah. And they had the the, the spores had the power to unlock doors what? and you could rescue vestal virgins in the castle oh, by geez. taking the spores up to the lock and blowing the spores onto the lock. Oh, and this spores had to be collected from a woodpecker's hole in a tree and it had to be done at night what? and they rendered you invisible. If you put the spores on yourself. Okay. And so I kind of told you a little lie earlier. I told you that I was being interviewed with you today from Colorado that's Matt, that's actually not true. I'm Uh-oh. actually sitting right next to you. Oh no. <laughs> I thought those doors looked familiar. <laughs> and you know, maybe one day I'll let you see me if I can just Figure out how to get these dang spores off oh, of me. Oh, no, I might have a
0: hose out back if you need, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> unless you got some things you got to do. I, it's up to you.
1: <laughs> so, and, and the name moonwort is actually alludes to medieval curative medicinal properties. Wart wow. is, you know, the medieval tag along name for curative properties like uh, St. John's wort, for mm, example. Okay. And then moon refers to the shape of the, of the pinnae. Hmm which are kind of half-moon-shaped in, in, in the type species Botrychium lunaria, luna, moon. Hmm. Um, or, the, or maybe because they came out under a full moon, we're not really sure. But they were first described pre-Linnaean name of Lunaria uh, by a, another gentleman before Linnaeus. Wow. And then he, he put them into Botrychium, and he the, the type for the genus is Botrychium lunaria, huh. after luna, moon
0: who to thunk? That is remarkable. What a great history to what is today still, I will contend, a largely obscure group of plants among most people. But with that in mind, you talk about their cryptic nature, their small stature, the fact that they can disappear for years at a time, and the fact that, you know, today most people are so disconnected from the botanical world that Botrychium wouldn't even come up. Conservation. Obviously, these are a group of plants that probably get the short shrift when it comes to attention, uh, especially at a conservation level. So, what what do you know about that?
1: Right. So, actually, when I worked for the U.S. Forest Service, uh, I was a, I was the forest botanist in Fort Collins, out uh, of the supervisor's office for the Arapahoe Roosevelt National Forest and Pawnee National Grassland for about fifteen years. I started finding these on proposed timber sales and other actions that could adversely harm ecosystems. So I thought, oh my gosh, now that I found them, what do I do with them? What do we do for conservation? What's the need? How rare are they? Does this matter? And the Forest Service actually wrote sort of a national conservation guide that you can find online Hmm. through the Forest Service about how to conserve them, but Basically, they do have a conservation need, and um, if you destroy or, or or alter the below ground, you know, ecosystem that we talked about, bad things will happen to the moonworts. They'll go away, hmm. and so there are some very rare moonworts, at least above ground. We, it's really hard to measure what they might be doing below ground, but when we count leaves above ground, there are some that are truly rare above ground. I mentioned Botrychium ferrariae in the bighorns of Wyoming earlier. That's known from three small sites of, I mean, less than a dozen plants each or something like that along one road. And so that's pretty, that's pretty rare. And maybe it's even endemic and maybe it's even going extinct. Maybe it was once formally more Mm -hmm. common. We don't know. Um, So there are others that are fairly common and they don't warrant any special management consideration in and of themselves because they're, they're, they're kind of everywhere. If you look for them and you know the right habitat to get your gestalt, you can find them. But again, they're the canary, they represent the below ground ecosystem. So even though they're common, you, you still wanna conserve them when you find them because you're in essence having, you're forced into conserving the below ground ecosystem. You can't mess with it. You can't take a big skitter over it. You can't plow it up. You can't do a lot of, you can't drain it and change the moisture regime because it will uh, mess with the, uh, I'm, I'm sure, very complex relationships mm-hmm. below ground yeah. with, with Botrychium. So when you find it, you want to conserve it, and you want to cons- – conserving means keep maintaining the habitat how you have it now. It likes uh, – a lot of them in the West actually like open areas that are not uh, under forested canopy. They're, they're open natural meadows, or they're, they're um, historically disturbed meadows – that are now stabilized so things like avalanche shoots uh, old ghost towns old mining districts earthen dams uh ro- they love highway road shoulders and dirt road shoulders and uh they love uh areas that have been previously burned and released a bunch of nutrients and have cleared away the canopy and natural meadows and in colorado they go up to the alpine the true alpine hmm. Uh, And and so whatever is holding that habitat in check or keeping that habitat how you see it now, when you found the moonworts you want to perpetuate that habitat. And if that means going into doing a little bit of habitat managing, maybe a burn or some thinning or something that doesn't harm the below ground soil profiles to keep that habitat kind of mid-serial or I don't want to say mid seral because it's really not a serile stage. It's more a, a, a graminoid herb meadow opening stage. Okay. You want to keep that stage. And when you start to see recruiting conifers in Colorado that are head high to knee high, you know that it's starting to close in with conifers. The moonworts might go out of the system. Hmm. So moonworts might be a transient phenomenon at a site. It might like the, again, the Goldilocks thing, it might like the site at a phase where it's been historically disturbed in the past but not anymore cuz too much disturbance is bad but it's not closed in with canopy cover from surrounding trees yet hmm. so it's kind of an open meadow stage so you want to preserve that open meadow stage and eventually as it closes in the the moonworts move on and and maybe the spores that have been sitting a mile away or 30 meters away and an oak, uh, now can come out and play in in that meadow hmm. setting or that herb graminoid setting so, um, the other reason you want to conserve them, which means conserving the habitat and kind of keeping it how it is, is because when you find the common ones, moonworts, uh, especially in the Western US, but it's generally true everywhere, they occur in like a guild, a species guild. So, you find multiple species at one site. Ooh. And in Colorado, it's common to find five and six and seven multiple species at one site. Nice. And so when you find a site and you see, oh, there's this common botrichium neolunaria, it's everywhere here. We don't have to worry about this site too much. Well, maybe the really, really rare ones are also at that site. You're just not seeing those. Right. Maybe they're just staying below ground. Maybe your eyes missed them. And so for just preserving the rarity of some of the taxa that may be there, but you can't tell, it's good to conserve that site. So that's, that's kind of where conservation Mm. is at. And This this all, you know, this all started with um, urban Florence Wagner in the 80s and 90s, who started figuring out that, wow, there's a lot more moonworts than just this one weird thing. (laughs) And between 1981 and 2001, we saw a huge increase in the number of of, um, described taxa uh, to get us kind of where we are today. And I just want to name call some people because I'm I'm just a newbie to this actually. (laughs) I didn't get addicted until 2005, and I I have the full-on moonwort madness botrycelosis disease. You know, it's like that young disease. Your brain goes nuts. (laughs) Uh, You know, you have to be. You know, I used to think that people, a lot of botanists, were a tad askew (laughs) to love botany. But you know what? I, I I don't think that so much anymore. I think botanists just have a love for understanding the mysterious and the beauty that our plants, my goodness, they're beautiful. Yes. And even if we are a tad askew, there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all it's fun. Botany is fun. Botany exactly. is wonderful. But I, I, did, I want to call out some names that were kind of the mentors before me. Yeah, please In do. In Colorado, uh, there's, there's a guy named Peter Root that really uh, took off f- describing and, and, understanding moon warts and brought it to the forefront there are some people that have, have studied the taxonomy, Warren Hawk, um, Peter Zika, Tony Sperbilli are some names, Jim Montgomery. These are kind of the moonwort clade or the moonwort cohort who are <laughs> really the movers and shakers for understanding the taxonomy and, and biology. Uh, my mentor is Don Ferrar at Iowa State University. He's probably he's up there with the world's leading authorities on moonworts. And he's very accessible to your listeners if they would like to know more about this fascinating world of moonworts. Mary Stensfold has been doing a lot of taxonomy and describing and realigning um, groups of species lately. She's in Alaska. Cindy Johnson was a professor um, at the Gustavus um, Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. She she's done a lot of work on the below ground ecology, helping us figure out the gametophytes and the sporophytes and the antheridia and archegonia and the swimming and the sperm <laughs> and the egg and all that stuff and figuring out how the ecology works below ground. In Colorado, more recently, Scott Smith and David Steinman have been um, expanding a lot of our range of Colorado moonworts, and myself and a bunch of Forest Service botanists in the Black Hills in South Dakota, and uh, my colleague Ben Legler uh, are are kind of the the, the recent people. And a guy named Dauphin and his cadre have done a lot of cladistics on on moonworts using some pretty advanced, fancy stuff, trying to figure out where everything fits. And there's been a lot of Canada botanists. Nice. That have gotten into this lately because Canada is saying, oh, my God, the U.S. Forest Service is really getting into this conservation of moon warts. And <laughs> there's been this explosion of literally hundreds, and I'm not uh, aggrandizizing, literally hundreds of botanists, huh? uh, uh, government botanists, Forest Service, Park Service, BLM botanists, NatureServe, the Nature Conservancy botanists, state parks, county parks have been just going nuts since their early 2000s looking for moonworts because it's kind of taken on this um uh, attention disproportionate to its small size <laughs> and uh, they've gotten this moonwort madness bug and there's national moonwort workshops your listeners can go to that have field days where you're on your hands and knees crawling around and you will find <laughs> moonworts and uh, it's really a lot of fun, and um, Canada said maybe we ought to be paying attention. So nice. we recently held a, a, a national moonwort workshop in, in a beautiful provincial park in Canada. And, I mean, we had the national botanist of Canada and a lot of the um, provincial botanists and some nature conservancy botanists. We had, like, I think it was, like, 25 people, and we ran around and did this beautiful workshop at this beautiful setting in one of their wonderful parks. And we ran around two days in the woods looking for this moonworts, and guess what? We found Botrychium ferculatum, the new one that we just recently <laughs> searched. Yeah, and you know what? Oh my gosh, you know when they see that first plant, the light comes on, and the eyes open, and the smile is huge, and they're on their hands and knees, grinning from chin, you know, chin to eyeball, and they're going Steve. This is a national record. Uh, a country uh, record. It happen every day. Uh, we have it as one of our type, one of our um, types or paratypes in our publication. This is this park with their names, and so it leads to a lot of fun. It leads to a lot of after-field get-togethers and really good <laughs> dinners and really good music and really good um, pop and beer drinking. And nice. It's just. Uh, it's a way. I don't know, this madness of Botrychium has been a great way for uh, botanists to unite and and form their cadres of like-minded people and just have a whole lot of fun out there in the field and in the lab too.
0: I love it. So you not only have a group of plants that teach us something about history, about evolution, about habitat and ecosystem health and conservation, but also bringing people together from across borders to celebrate and understand and be part of all this. What more praise could you give an entire group of obscure plants? I love it.
1: Oh my God, exactly. When you're you're sitting there at a restaurant in the middle of nowhere in in Southern Saskatchewan, (laughs) inside a park, and you're, you're, you're having a really wonderful dinner, and there's people from all over Canada there, and there's four or five people from very... Don and I and Cindy. Cindy's from Minnesota. Don's from Iowa. I'm from Colorado. We're there hosting the workshop, and we're all toasting a wonderful field day where we all learned something and we all had a whole lot of fun doing it. I mean, it just doesn't get better than that, right?
0: Yeah, no, that is, it's cream of the crop right there, like chef's kiss style. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> right, uh, right? Wow. Always
1: right at the world for that moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you got to take the time to celebrate those moments because no one else is going to do it for you.
1: Right. And the other thing that's neat about it is um, it, it brings home all your hard earned college semesters and all your um, <laughs> scraping in the labs and scraping of academia. And you're actually in the field holding up little moonworts and having a really good dinner afterwards. It just brings it full circle to say, OK, this is the bottom line. Yeah. This is what it's all about. I'm holding this leaf in my hand. Oh, by, by the way, that brings a point about collecting moonworts if you do happen to find them. Uh, there is a very specific way to collect them, oh, otherwise okay. you can harm the plant. Okay. So if for your listeners, if they are lucky enough to go look for moonworts and find them. By the way, you usually find them when you're taking a potty break or eating your lunch sitting on the ground.
0: <laughs> yeah. You don't find them when you're looking yeah, for them. <laughs> those are the best plants, though, by the way. <laughs>
1: They're right there between your legs. (laughs) right. Um, To collect them, you you only need to collect the leaf. You don't need to collect any below-ground parts. They're not important for identification, and we have good type specimen vouchers that already vouched the the below-ground material. So you want to collect the leaf, and you want to cut it at ground level with a really sharp instrument and make a really fine cut, like a a, a sharp knife or scissors, but you don't want to pinch it or pull it. Because what happens is infection will come at, mm. that, in, at that, that pinched or pulled site, and that infection will spread uh, down in, through the petiole down into the plant and, and kill the plant. And since all the plants are connected with fungi, we don't know how far that infection Ooh. might go. Yeah. So you want to you cut them, and, and then you just press them in a way that show the, um, the most important diagnostic features for keying out. moonworts are the shape of the pinnae, which is on the frond-looking portion, of the, of the of the leaf and you want to make sure those pinnae aren't crumpled and shriveled up and you want to press them out flat and make sure that people can see the shapes and the outlines of the pinnae that's the key and um there is a great website that i will provide you the link to yeah or your listeners could just google iowa state university moonworts, and <laughs> the first thing that will pop up will be moonwort systematics nice. at iowa state university at the ada hayden herbarium there by dr donald farrar my mentor colleague and dear friend and uh if you go to that site it's a wonderful one-stop shopping site it'll contain everything i told you today and more a lot more (laughs) and it'll get into the genetics and uh, um, homozygosity and outcrossing and horizontal evolution and polyploidy it'll go into it at great detail it has a lot of figures it has some line drawings And it'll talk about all the importances that I've mentioned and more. And it also has a little teeny um, series of pages for each specific taxon or species with color photographs and plates and distribution maps in North America and talk about who the parents are. And this is a tetraploid. Its parents are these. And it's it's just a great it's a great way that if the listeners are still with us at this point in
0: time. Oh, they are
1: and want to go okay i've heard enough about moonworts i have to at least see what one looks like <laughs> and i want to know more about these things go to that website and it's all right there it's 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 a great site
0: fantastic steve man thank you so much for this beautiful <laughs> introduction to this amazing group of plants i can't thank you for your passion for your dedication the years you have spent trying to understand and help everyone else understand these plants and and just for taking time to talk with us. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating.
1: Well, you're welcome, Matt. It's really been my pleasure. You know, it's um you have a great forum in which to talk geek talk, <laughs> straight talk with botanists. <laughs>
0: That's why I'm it's here. it's
1: hard to find and I appreciate your website. I've listened to your podcast. They're great. Thank you. It's a wonderful way for like-minded botanists to share knowledge and and to learn about things. And by, by the way, I don't we talked about the feather of the cat being you know, you get to describe a species. Woo-hoo. I mean, yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. But I don't think that that's where a good researcher or a good scientist's job or role stops. <laughs> I think it goes on after that into translating that into knowledge and learning and passing that learning on to fellow botanists and, and anyone who has an interest in plants and wants to know more. It's, it's, I don't even think. I don't know. It's maybe like too noble to say this, but it's not, it's like our responsibility. It's not even a good to do thing. It's the responsibility of, of a botanist or a researcher plant ecologist to uh, share knowledge and to pass it on in a way that's fun and exciting because, Oh my God, the world of plants is so incredibly fun and interesting and mysterious. And we, you know, it just makes me humble to think that, you know, (laughs) humans, yeah, we, we think we're on top, but whatever these moonworts are doing, they've been doing it a long time. It's a, it's a little plant with a big attitude and it makes me humble and it makes me have a lot of fun.
0: Excellent. Well, beautifully put Steve again, thank you so much for your time and for your passion and for, for talking with us. We really appreciate it, but hang in there, stay healthy and uh, happy botanizing, man.
1: Happy botanizing, Matt. Thank you.
0: Yep. Cheers. All right, that's it for yet another fantastic episode. I thank Steve for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us and for sharing his true passion for these incredible ferns. Keep your eyes out. You never know what new discoveries await us just over the horizon. I will say that unless you're collecting for scientific purposes, maybe don't go collecting moon warts. That's just my two cents. But regardless, I thank Steve for giving us some information on how to do that the right way. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Of course, I thank everyone who supports this podcast through Patreon, which includes some wonderful producers. In fact, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Craig and Lily. They both went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So thank you to them and everyone else that supports this show from month to month. I could not be doing it without your support. Of course, you can support the show in other ways by picking up merch, my book and stickers. At the very least, consider hitting that subscribe button and telling your friends. But until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.